a legit central bank with a material amount of capital moving into Bitcoin, it was entirely a theoretical proposition. I think what's happened in the past two weeks has made that now like plausible. You could see it in the next uh, in the next year or two. And I think that's that to me is kind of a game changer. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying, I'm a hodler, but I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it's level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Also, today we have Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SAS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. 
take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. So Matt, how you doing? How's it going? Good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming. Um, you wrote quite, quite, the, quite the document. Uh, <laughs> my brother's a researcher on the show. Mm. I'm going to give you a big compliment to start with. He said it's the best thing he's read about Bitcoin since the white paper. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's certainly a compliment. You should take it. Okay. Give me the background. Certainly. So uh, I'll start with myself, uh, since not many people probably know about me or kind of my background in this area. So uh, I've actually started, you know, in a more management consulting capacity uh, for about 10 years now, uh, more as a Bitcoin lurker uh, than necessarily kind of very public about it. Um, but really about a year ago, uh, as Bitcoin you know, really became relevant on a macroeconomic and geopolitical level, you know, started to engage more publicly on Twitter. Uh, about those sorts of issues, the intersection between Bitcoin and national security, just to kind of get my thoughts out there. wasn't really intending to make much of it. Uh, and then uh, just a few months ago, some folks uh, kind of reached out to me and said, hey, we want to put together this think tank called the Bitcoin Policy Institute. And we want to, you know, represent your ideas as sort of what's this mean for national security. Uh, and I had some sort of ideas bouncing around in the back of my head about how to articulate this uh, in a way that would be sort of relevant and sort of speaking the language of the folks kind of in the D.C., national security kind of community, the, the folks that I kind of um, spent the last 10 years working with. And I felt like that sort of bridge needed to be built, uh, how to articulate the value of Bitcoin uh, and the benefits to America kind of through those through that lens. And so that's kind of what I sort of set out to do in the past uh, sort of month or two was really to put together this document sort of, okay, if I was going to write something for my you know, former bosses, right, the people that I kind of worked with in the past uh, number of years, who are not, you know, naturally going to be inclined positively to Bitcoin, um, but probably don't know much about it. So how would I write something to help, you know, give them a primer on this uh, and also make a clear argument for how it actually is beneficial for national security? So that's kind of where I started, um, really just kind of writing it uh, in the sort of on my own time. <laughs> and then when the uh, news about the executive order kind of came, yeah, you know, as, well, as it was going to come out, I was like, All right, I have to actually put, put, some, put some finishing touches to this thing and, and get it out there. Uh, uh, to help sort of shape the broader conversation uh, that's I'm certainly going to be brought up as the executive order kind of starts to roll out with all those different reports. So, so that's kind of the, that specific paper where that came from. My background is in uh, kind of more the security preparedness world. So I did undergrad in physics and philosophy, didn't really know what I wanted to do with life, thought I was going to be an academic, sort of took a hard turn away from the PhD track after I realized being an academic was not my cup of tea. Uh, stalled for a year over, over, over in, uh, across the pond in your, in your neighborhood, uh, did a master's at the Lund School of Economics, uh, kind of bridging from my philosophy to more public policy background, uh, came back to the States, did two years at the National Science Foundation, supporting kind of a cluster of programs in economics, decision risk, management sciences, science of organizations. I really saw from kind of a bird's eye view how the government makes these sort of funding decisions for research. Uh, and that was really useful and valuable for about two years. And I figured, okay, this is about uh, run its course. Uh, and I you know, ran into buddies who were kind of uh, connected to this small startup in management consulting in DC. And I was like, I'll give that a try. Uh, you know, it was like a 12 person company at the time. It was you know, young and fun and really got involved in some really interesting work, uh, essentially trying to help the government 
answer the question, are we prepared for bad things? <laughs> and try to do, answer that question in a rigorous way. So I, I've supported a number of projects kind of in that area over the years, uh, both kind of in the quantitative side, so doing uh, kind of quantitative analysis of the question of preparedness for the government and sort of the whole, the whole country. How do, we, how do we answer the question, are we prepared for different scenarios? Uh, but also doing more practical, what we call exercises, essentially war games. So you have a bunch of hypothetical scenarios and you construct them, you sort of try to base them on um, you know, what you think is likely uh, under different conditions, and then you role play them uh, at different levels of government uh, or the private sector or both. And you try to figure out like where your gaps are, uh, how you should improve those. And so those are both like man-made threats, so standard things like terrorism and cyber attacks, um, you know, biological attacks, uh, but also just like, you know, bad, normal, natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes and pandemics. Uh, so I spent a number of years just sort of gradually getting more and more paranoid about all the bad things that could happen until I reached sort of just a level of Zen. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but that was really, really valuable experience, understanding just how the government works, different parts of the government, how they, how they perceive the world. Um, and then when I got, you know, more interested in Bitcoin, that's where I felt like I could have sort of, you know, value add is starting to connect sort of an understanding of how the government thinks about things and how they're sort of naturally disposed to think about things more as a threat than necessarily as an opportunity, just sort of the nature of our geopolitical position is we're, you know, the top of the mountain, right? So um, we're more, I think, worried on net about, you know, things that could threaten that position than necessarily opportunities to bolster and strengthen that position. And I think that comes through in sort of the natural kind of gut reaction to, to sort of anything that's new is sort of inherent suspicion. Um, and it's sort of incumbent on folks, you know, that think Bitcoin is valuable to sort of help, help them understand, you know, that's really not a threat, actually, that it's actually, um, you know, net, net good for, for the United States. Um, as long as we recognize, like, what it is um, and, you know, accurately, you know, assess, uh, you know, how we can leverage it, not control it, but, you know, take advantage of, of what it means for our, our country on the world stage. And is there a risk with seeing every possible threat that you become... <laughs> policy-wise, super negative and paranoid, it leads to the, uh, things like the NSA mm -hmm. and potentially uh, ideas around foreign policy that seem super hostile and aggressive towards other nations, which are the kind of things that uh, pointed criticism at the US over mm -hmm. the, not just recent years, but decades. Yeah, and I, I've been mostly focused on kind of the domestic side, than necessarily sort of um, foreign policy per se. But I think that's also speaks to you know, one of the things that is a challenge with the government is that it is massive. There are silos and stove uh, sort of stovepipes everywhere, and the left hand doesn't always know what the right hand's doing. And sometimes the right hand's doing stuff that's counterproductive to what the left hand's trying to do. <laughs> and so I think people think of the government as a sort of this monolith that has some sort of inherent malevolent attitude to things, and mostly it's just either ignorance or incompetence or people not knowing exactly what to say about a certain thing that's new because it's just not in their institutional framework. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is that sort of, you know, history of the U.S. as a global power, right? That sort of you need to honestly reckon with the sort of the, the economic forces that we leverage to sustain that power, you know, the various military activities we've engaged in to try to maintain that power um, and what that means going forward. Because I think the conditions that led to America's success over the 20th century are not just going to, you know, inevitably obtain uh, into the future. Uh, we can't just sort of coast on, you know, the things that sustain that power in the 20th century. Uh, and especially, um, you know, recent events have, I think, cast some of those inherent uh, constraints and weaknesses into sharp relief. So, yeah, I think that is a, that's something I think the policy community hasn't really been forced to reckon with. I think, you know, when you're top of the mountain, 
you don't have to think too hard about your mistakes. <laughs> you can sort of just print the money and paper over it, right? Uh, but when you don't have that capacity anymore, you actively have to like make good choices. <laughs> like when you have when you have scarcity, when you have constraint, uh, you know you're forced to um, actually recognize mistakes. And, uh, and I think that's part of the lesson of, of Bitcoin is you know mistakes have consequences, and that forces people to you know have personal responsibility. I think that applies at the national level too. And how much of this modeling work involved modeling uh, economic uh, infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, economic challenges, uh, energy policy, uh, markets, international markets, et cetera? Mm -hmm. So for example, we're seeing energy as a national security issue right now. Mm -hmm. it's, was that involved in this? So the government would like there to be some master all-seeing model of the world. And I think there's been some ambitious efforts in the past to try to construct some, uh, you know, machine learning, AI models uh, that try to plug in all the data and, and figure out like where the flashing red lights are. And I think the lesson that I have is that just that one that has never been successful and it's almost impossible to do something like that. And so what they've tried to do in the past is try to chunk things into buckets. And so, and every agency does that in a different way. And this is part of the problem. But for example, like CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, has a responsibility, it's a new agency, and their responsibility is, is sort of in the name. It's sort of cybersecurity and infrastructure security on the domestic side. So they're focused on, you know, keeping the lights on, keeping, you know, the water system functioning, keeping the internet working. And so they have 16 critical infrastructure sectors defined. And, you know, they, had, they try to do sort of risk assessments of each of those 16 sectors. Um, but when you actually try to dig into any one of them, like oil and gas or, or, uh, or the internet, it's massively complex. I mean, these are things that are, um, just impossible to even get like the basic understanding of, let alone to try to model, right? You're just trying to like how many, how many uh, you know critical nodes in the grid you know are, are there, and you know what's that you know critical node that could create a cascading failure point, um, and that's just one of the critical infrastructure sectors, and that's just domestic, and it's almost impossibly complex. So I think the idea that that anyone has any, you know, reasonable or rational approach to try to map how say a supply shock in a certain commodity is going to translate to domestic um, kind of economic or social instability. It's just, you just don't know. Like these things are just chaotic systems. Bad things can happen that maybe you never thought about that can quickly propagate and cause cascading consequences. And that's kind of one of the, my lessons is just don't try to predict. Don't try to uh, think your mental model is going to map onto the world and anything that's going to be useful. It's more a matter of constructing a range of possible scenarios that you have some basis to decide between them. Like, this is more or less likely than this. Uh, and then understand, well, why? Is, is this the likely scenario? What are the trends or forces that are gonna make something like this happen versus this? I think that's the best you can do. Um, and then the other, I think, lesson is sort of, you know, also a lesson from Bitcoin, is sort of trying to be anti-fragile, right? Like when you have this massively complex system of, of interdependencies where one failure point can, can, can cascade, like, your, your approach shouldn't be trying to find all those possible weak points because you're never going to find it. It's just designing the system such that one failure doesn't propagate and take everything else down. <laughs> and so I think that applies to the monetary system, applies to just sort of governance systems. It's about making all the systems that we rely on in our, in our daily life, which includes the monetary system, more one robust sort of to first order and then ideally more anti-fragile, right? That it's actually going to improve over time as it gets as it gets stressed and strained. And that's the opposite of the system we have right now. Our systems across the board are very fragile um, with all these interdependencies kind of tied together. Uh, and so that's kind of, you know, I think one of the things that Bitcoin is trying to bring up is more of a conceptual level is 
you know, the systems we've designed are these are just-in-time supply chains. Everything is optimized for financial return. Everything is uh, one bad, you know, uh, uh, sort of unanticipated trigger away from total collapse. And you can do that for so long, and you can sort of pr pretend, you can fool yourself into thinking the system's stable when it's not stable. Uh, and I think you see this in things like the treasury market, right? Actions that we just saw with the Russian Central Bank is, I think, um, uh, reveals a kind of, you could call it hubris, or you could just call it like uh, a false sense of security. That like the system that has been stable for your professional life is always going to be stable. And that you'll be able to see sort of marginal weakness and respond in time before it spirals out of control. And I think like the lesson I, I draw from my, my professional background and other studies is just that that is a mistaken kind of analytical approach. That you're not going to see those failures coming. Uh, and you're not going to have the warning. And so you need to think ahead of time and think through the what ifs. Like, what if the treasury market wasn't as stable as we thought it was? What's our backup plan, <laughs> right? And I think if you don't have that backup, like my you know, work in the government is all about like the what ifs. What is the bad scenarios? Even if they're not likely, well, what are we going to do? How do we proactively address those? Um, and yeah, I think that's kind of for me, like why Bitcoin is not like an, an alien concept to bring in. It's just, it's, a, it's one of those options on the table that we should look at. Um, especially as we encounter a geopolitical situation that's, I think, bringing these tail risks more to the center of the probability distribution. Did Bitcoin click for you straight away when you discovered it? Because you mentioned earlier <laughs> that you studied at LSE. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to make an assumption that you you didn't study Austrian economics. Um, <laughs> uh, so did it click for you straight away? Did it take some time? Did you dismiss it and then come back to it? Definitely did not click for me the first time. Uh, you know, I think I had a typical Bitcoin story where you know you have that one crazy friend, you know, back in 2013 who tells you about it, and you're like, "This is, you know, this is your drug money. This is like your weird, you know, magic magic internet money." So I totally dismissed it then, and then again in 2015, that same friend who was, you know, uh, kind of getting into it had started, you know, getting into it more seriously. I think he maybe even started some sort of crypto hedge fund. I'm not sure how legit how legitimate it was, but I remember having like a, you know. You know, I, I was on the other side, like, this is a scam. This is going to blow up in your face. And he was trading all those ICOs and everything else that was happening. So it was kind of hard to figure out what the signal to noise was. Uh, and it really wasn't until uh, early 2019, I, I got more kind of intellectually curious about it. I was like, this thing hasn't gone away. Obviously, I was wrong to sort of think it was just going to go poof. Uh, so I started reading more about it. Um, and then the pandemic hit and kind of shifted my reading away from Bitcoin to being like, what is this emergent virus in China? <laughs> and so from January to March, that was sort of my intellectual focus. And then March happened. And then I realized sort of there's a, like, there was a fundamental shift now that was, that was taking place kind of in the economic system. And I think I went through a similar journey maybe with Michael Saylor went through, which is like the magnitude of the response, uh, both fiscally, monetarily, but also just like the social response like for me, like made Bitcoin just now front and center. It was sort of like, okay, stop reading about epidemiological studies and now read about, okay, what is this going to, what are the second and third order consequences of this going to mean for the global system? And that's when I think for me, like all the pieces came, came, came together uh, as like a geopolitical uh, uh, issue. Before it was just like, what is the inherent kind of value proposition of Bitcoin as a sort of abstract state independent money system. Um, but then I thought about it in 2020 more as like, this is going to be a real macroeconomically relevant, geopolitically relevant phenomenon. And like, that's where I started to see, okay, well, someone needs to start thinking about how to translate this to that audience so that as it's, as I think it's going to become, 
Like we need to understand this to have like a proper um, approach to it, a proper strategy for it. But you also think it's an asset for the government. I don't mean an asset, mm -hmm. like something you hold, like it's a, there's a benefit to the US government for having a positive Bitcoin uh, set of policies, uh, set of regulations. Mm -hmm. um, but do you, do you have like a personal thesis? Because mm -hmm. uh, Bitcoin has a wide spectrum of uh, speculators, adopters, mm -hmm. companies, ranging from libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, people <laughs> who think Bitcoin will lend the state, people think that Bitcoin is an asset to the state, people who think it's a check and balance on the state. Mm -hmm. um, it is a wide group of people with a wide group of considerations. And even more recently, you know, starting to see more moderates and left-wing people come into Bitcoin, not just come in, but actually have their own personal thesis on why liberals should like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. you know, so do you have like a personal thesis? Yeah, and I think there's merit to almost all of those perspectives. I don't think they're not mutually contradictory. And I think yeah. you know, Bitcoin is just a, it's, first and foremost, it's a neutral tool, but it forms a, an anchor point for sort of different layers of social consensus. So the basic layer of social consensus that's anchored on like the technical rules of the protocol are the things like the supply cap, the block size, et cetera. You know, not political, right? There may be political in the Bitcoin world, right? There's sort of, there has been factions in the past that have split off, right? Uh, you know, like Bitcoin Cash, BSV, et cetera. Like those are political divisions within kind of this, the first layer of social consensus about what Bitcoin is. Um, but I think we all agree that like there is now sufficiently hardened social consensus on that about what Bitcoin is. Uh, kind of the core features of Bitcoin that we all agree on are the things we agree makes Bitcoin. But then there's other layers of social consensus, like other political attitudes, political philosophies, motivations for constructing social arrangements that people then anchor to that, that layer. And I think that's where people start to bring in their existing social and political attitudes. And that's perfectly, you know, I'm a pluralist at heart. I think, you know, those are what makes democracy great. People can have divergent views. It's just a matter of you know, uh, constructing an arrangement where people can have those divergent views. I think Bitcoin is a delightful manifestation of that, right? You can have an anarcho-libertarians and progressives all find value in this tool and, and think that it's going to be a good thing for their political objectives. Um, and I say the more the merrier on that. And I'm, you know, I came from more of a progressive background. I voted Democrat most of my life in spite of being more in the kind of the, in the national security world. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, there is a, there's an argument to be made that you know this does align with some of the, the progressive values, and so I, there's some folks in the space that have articulated that quite well. Um, but you know, I don't think that it's Bitcoin is a replacement for your political advocacy on those topics, right? If you think there's a certain social program that you want to um, you know advocate for, your job is to convince your fellow human beings that that's a good thing, right? Uh, and you know, just like we try to convince other people that Bitcoin is a good thing, um, you know, if you want to engage in political discourse, you know, you have to convince other people that your ideas are good. Um, so yeah, I, I don't claim any mantle to have like a special kind of unique political insight uh, on that. Um, but, but also to the point about whether Bitcoin is good for the U.S. government, that also comes back around to like the government is in, in our democracy, in my mind, is a manifestation of political, you know, will, political consensus, right? We make our own government. We vote them in. Uh, and especially in our system, you know, huge swaths of the U.S. government are political officials that come in with each new administration. And there is that civil service kind of, you know, core bureaucracy that doesn't really change. Um, but in our system, unlike in some other governments, you know, the you know, huge number, thousands of people come in to the U.S. government every, every, every administration. And so you do have a lot of power to shape who those people are, what their views are. And if you think, you know, that's 
that's the privilege of living in a democracy is you can try to articulate your preferred you know objectives and you know convince someone in a position of authority to to follow that um I think that's that's like the job of Bitcoiners now. It's like, hey, I live in a de democracy. I want where I live to be successful. I want us to be strong and secure and have an abundant economic uh, uh, kind of society. I want I, I want Bitcoin to succeed here. I, I'm an American. I want America to have Bitcoin be successful. You know, here. I recently read the book The Fifth Risk, mm -hmm. which explains what happens every time a new administration comes in mm -hmm. and how all these roles have to be filled. That kind of completely blew my mind mm -hmm. how this works in in each transition from uh, one administration to the next. It was, it, I, I don't think a lot of people outside political circles understand this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it can be a real risk as, as I think happened uh, during the Trump administration yep. where they were not prepared, I think, to actually win. And so they usually part of the campaign process is you and, you know, part of the this is the downside of the system is there's sort of lots of patronage, lots of back scratching, lots of you support me and you'll get that deputy assistant secretary job that you've been angling for your entire life. Um, and there is that kind of, you know, cronyism. Right. Um, and it's sort of how do you balance? Is that truly meritocratic? Are those people actually experts in that job or are they did they just sort of um, you know, uh, kind of work the angles, right? And that happens in every in every system of government. Um, but it does also mean that there's a lot of turnover. It does also mean that um, if you are thinking in timescales of four, eight, 12 years, it's not implausible to think that you could have pro-Bitcoin policymakers and officials in like positions of national leadership in these bureaucracies if you engage systematically in political advocacy. Um, and that's why it's not this sort of, uh, that's why people think US government is sort of this um, impenetrable, entity that is in permanent opposition to us or whoever us is. And it's actually not, it's a very permeable membrane. <laughs> and that, that entity that you think the US government is, is you know, on a reasonable time scale that you can influence um, quite, uh, you know, quite open to, to things that, that can evolve uh, if given you know, the proper, proper, proper pressure. Um, but yeah, it does expose our system to risk where if administration comes in and just puts someone in a position that has no idea what they're doing, they can, they can mess things up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's sort of, that's the upside and the downside of having a system like that. And it does mean when I think it's 40, was it 14% of American citizens have traded, let's say, crypto broadly, mm -hmm. that in the next administration, there's almost certainly going to be some people in there who have access, hold, trade, mm -hmm. but almost certainly have some access to or exposure to Bitcoin. And I think that was, that command in the executive order, I think they, you know, you can look in the weeds and, you know, get into precise um, kind of technocratic uh, analysis of what each particular report is going to mean. But I think for me, the biggest takeaway is that they're waking up to this thing is real. It's not going away. They need to actually understand it. Uh, and part of that's built on the fact that Americans have adopted it. If Americans hadn't adopted it, there'd be no, there'd be no, uh, you know, digital asset executive order, right? Um, and that's how these things happen, right? Like they, they happen from the bottom up. Uh, they generate sufficient um, kind of social and political uh, reality that politicians have to respond to it. Um, and then, you know, it's a matter of how you shape those policies uh, in a way that makes, you know, where you live, you know, a conducive jurisdiction for you to engage in the activity that you prefer to engage in. <laughs> and that's the whole part of politics. I mean, you can always exit, right? You kind of got two options. You have voice and exit. Uh, you can voice, you can try to, you know, articulate what you want uh, through the mechanisms you have at your disposal to influence, you know, the rules that that are that you're subject to, and you can exit. You can go somewhere else, and I think that's the other half of it, right? I think that I think Bitcoiners have emphasized a lot of, right? Like I can just pack my Bitcoin up and leave. 
I just need 12, 24 words and a passphrase and I can, you know, post up shop somewhere else. Um, and I think that works for some people. Other people are, you know, like, I like where I live. I like my neighbors. I like my schools. I like my friends and my family. And there's a lot of social and political costs that I don't want to have to um, take if I don't have to. And so, you know, that's where the voice comes in. And I think you both uh, need to, you know, ex you know, leverage both aspects of, of kind of what makes, you know, you a, uh, a force in your local politics or, you know, your, your community. Okay. So the executive order, mm -hmm. what was the TLDR for it? Uh, I mean, TLDR was, yeah, Bitcoin's here to stay. Digital assets are here to stay. The government has to get smart on these things. And when the government tries to get smart on things, it means writing reports. And so what you're going to see over the next few months are lots of different agencies all essentially hustling to try to put out these reports. Uh, and I've, I've supported some of those types of reports in the past. And when you see a deadline that's a six months, you mean that you have two months to write the report because it's going to take four months for it to go through all the different review processes. Um, and, and I think this is sort of the starting gun for the government across the board to get smart on these issues. I think, you know, there's, there's risks, right, that they move too fast. They, don't, they use bad sources. Um, they use bias sources. So part of our objective at BPI, Bitcoin Policy, is, is to ensure that there's, you know, accurate information uh, at the disposal uh, of the government and these different agencies that are going to be writing some of these reports uh, and just trying to help ensure that, um, you know, they have access to the right facts. Uh, and so there's, you know, things like you know, Bitcoin and climate, energy, Bitcoin and illicit finance, um, you know, the broader, uh, you know, relevance of crypto assets to financial stability. You know, these are going to be some of the hot, hot topic items, as well as things like the central bank digital currency, right? So CBDCs. Um, and so really, uh, you know, there's a lot in there. It really touches pretty much every major topic you could think of that uh, digital assets would, would bring up. Um, so I think it's a net positive sign. Uh, but, you know, I think we have to be you know, cognizant of these are going to be, I think, relatively quickly produced reports. And they're probably going to be um, just the beginning of a long process as the government starts to engage on these different uh, issues. And so to Bitcoiners in general, <laughs> uh, there is a risk that the government becomes paranoid about these assets, uh, puts in quite onerous regulations, mm. surveillance. But there is also the flip side that they see the benefits to the country, the mm -hmm. economy, uh, the geopolitical situation, and become supportive of this. They could, mm -hmm. they could pull an El Salvador. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I wouldn't, I, I'm reserving judgment and I'm cautiously optimistic on net. I think there could be areas, right, where you see, um, you know, just bad, bad policymaking, you know, that, that the government has, has done that before. Um, but I also think Bitcoin in particular I don't think there's a whole lot of latent hostility in the majority of those regulatory bodies to Bitcoin. Um, I think the, mostly there's ignorance, there's sort of, you know, neutrality, and now they have to figure it out. Uh, but I also think that there's a, you know, they have to get smart on disentangling these issues that have now called, been bundled together, right? You can just throw like a headline together of like Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin Russia sanctions. And you just think, oh, well, Bitcoin is going to be helpful to the Russians to escape sanctions without actually analyzing the issue. And I think if they actually analyze the issue, they'll find that it's actually not useful for that. Same thing with like climate, right? Oh, Bitcoin bad for climate. But when you actually analyze the issue, you realize, oh, wait, Bitcoin mining, exceptionally helpful to incentivize the build out of flexible load on the grid, which is what we need in order to meet our net zero carbon emissions. So like, I actually think if the government does study these issues, like they'll do like what we did, which was like, oh, wow, I didn't know Bitcoin could have that positive impact. 
Um, and so I, I encourage all of that type of activity because what you don't want is just kind of the cognitive inertia of just latent misperceptions or, or you know, preconception bias to filter into policymaking if you want them to study the issue. And I think Bitcoiners have you know, nothing to gain but, um, you know, uh, but seeing good analysis happen on, on these different issues because uh, I think the truth is a good story. And what's the process for this? So a report is written, you have two months, <laughs> uh, it goes into the review process, mm -hmm. and then is it just made public for consultation does it come public with suggestions on policy for debate? What's the, mm -hmm. what's the process on this? So the executive order doesn't explain all of those details. Um, and I think each agency uh, that's been sort of tasked with these specific reports may approach it differently. Um, so I don't know if there's going to be an official like open comment period per se. But I do know that agencies are often receptive to, to input, right? Uh, you know, if you send them a white paper, they'll read it, right? And so... I think there's an opportunity to help provide right, you know, good information, or just prov or provide a place for the people writing those reports to go and get accurate information. Um, and there's no, sh you know, shortage of good information in the Bitcoin space. It's just getting into a form and a format that like a government bureaucrat can like easily cite. <laughs> and so it's like, oh wait, great, that Medium post has the best argument, but the government maybe not going to cite a Medium post. But if you put it into a nice template, right, with some good branding, they can cite it or they can use it. It's like just about giving it in a good in a good format. Um, so I think there, it'll, I, it'll probably be agency by agency, um, depending on the time scale. Some of them are really quick, like 90 days. Others, they have, you know, more like six, nine months. Um, I don't know in the majority of cases that you're going to have like an open comment period because they're not making rules per se. They're not like, the government has all sorts of processes they have to follow if they're going to make like a, a new rule and it's like rulemaking and sort of open comment period. If they're just writing a report, just like here's a report on this topic that you asked us for, Mr. President, they typically just publish it once it's done. Um, and so you really have to make sure that like the folks writing the report have access to good information. Um, but yeah, it is a, it's called a concurrence process. It sounds arcane, but that's how it works when you have these reports are written by usually one small group of people in one agency, and then they get uh, routed to all the different agencies. And so anyone in those agencies and that's in that process can review it, provide comments, and there's just this churn of what are we going to say? I've got an extra comma I want to add in here, uh, and then everyone once everyone agrees, then it passes concurrence and it goes out the door. Um, so yeah, it's. Um, but I think that that'll be. I don't think it'd be too much open comment period, but it'll be a useful, I think, indicator of where these different agencies are coming down on these issues. And we would hope that these people, in preparing their reports, would be speaking to people like yourself mm -hmm. or anyone within in the industry mm -hmm. who understands the key issues that are being dealt with here. The Speaking to the wrong person, reading the wrong medium post can mm -hmm. lead to an article which misinterprets misinterprets parts of Bitcoin or uh, misinterprets what the risks are, mm -hmm. and that can lead to a report that would be damaging for Bitcoin. Is that just a natural risk, or do you trust these the kind of people who are assigned these projects have the ability to find the right information? I, I really don't know how to ascribe the probability to that because okay. um, these are a lot of different agencies. Some of them, I think, know Bitcoin and crypto pretty well, and they've been studying it per their kind of um, per their authorities for a while. Uh, but some of these agencies have probably not really studied it, and so there is a risk that you could find someone just sort of get this dropped on their desk, and they got to do some quick googling, and that quick googling leads them to some bad sources. Now, I do think there's enough usually due diligence inside the government that even if there's sort of some you know shoddy work done on the first draft, there's a, there's so many people that have to review this thing. And it's they know it's going to stand up to a lot of scrutiny. That it would be embarrassing for the government if they like 
pr presented this report and had like an obvious factual error, right? If it cited like, you know, like the per transaction CO2 cost, right? That would be like so obviously disqualifying for its analytical rigor um, that I, I think those sort of like small ball errors would be corrected. Um, uh, but it's more of the strategic level things that we don't really know about. Like what are, what's the what's the bent going to be, right? And that's where, you know, I think it remains to be seen. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic on net, but I think you could see certain reports, you know, that just come out. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? Uh, you know, that was sort of out of left field. Uh, and there's going to be so many of these reports pushed through so many of these different agencies all in the next, you know, six months. Um, you know, the government just usually isn't that efficient, right? And so they have to push those things that quickly. You can have, you know, maybe, uh, you know, mistakes get in the process. So we'll see. And so therefore your report, mm -hmm. is this like a preemptive strike to lay down some ammo, some mm. information that you hope the kind of people writing these reports would have access to or see? Can you mm -hmm. ensure they reach these people? How, mm -hmm. does, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, exactly, right? So the first is putting it out there and then getting eyeballs on it. Uh, and folks then can read it, right? And then there's, you know, just, hey, I, there's someone inside, you know, Department of State, I'm going to email it to, right, for example, right? And hey, I, you know, send this to your, send this to whoever you think might, might find it valuable. There's nothing, there's no, there's, there's no problems with that. That happens all the time in the government, right? Uh, where people submit good ideas, white papers, uh, you know, even op-eds that, 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 that are helpful to kind of shape the conversation. So that's something that I think we're definitely going to try to do. Uh, specifically in my white paper, it was, it was, Certainly, I'd say first gear towards that, but also more at a larger level, trying to frame like the strategic view of Bitcoin in some of the more kind of I would say critical national security questions that really the EO itself doesn't even address. The EO, I think, takes a very narrow kind of technocratic approach, which is like these specific issue areas that align to the certain kind of bureaucratic structure of these agencies, the SEC, Treasury Department, et cetera, write, write a report on this specific topic. But really, there isn't anything in there, except for maybe the commerce report on kind of like a national strategy that, that is really at that sort of 10,000 foot level. Like, where is American power in 2022? How does that uh, stack up against the challenges we're facing in the world? Uh, how, does, how, do, how do those challenges, uh, how, how do those result from the structure of the monetary system that we've been coasting on for 50 years? And what are these you know, friction points that might be turning into fractures in that global order that are going to challenge the American power structure that like the whole point of the EO is to kind of, or isn't, is the premise of the EO in the first place. And so that was kind of the point of my paper was to sort of zoom out more uh, and, you know, really call for a national Bitcoin strategy, which the EO doesn't call for. It's sort of more technocratic issue by issue, getting smart on what Bitcoin or crypto assets mean in, in any one of these different areas. Um, I was trying to zoom out and say, well, we have some more fundamental issues that we have to understand and address and then understand how Bitcoin could play a role in helping, um, you know, support uh, the national security of the country, uh, given a really dynamic kind of global environment that's not necessarily uh, the one that we thought we were going to face a year ago. Um, so when you started producing this, were you naturally drawn to any specific topics? You thought, OK, yeah, this is a, this is a big win, economics or mm -hmm. energy. Where, where were you drawn to first? So if you've been following kind of the national security conversation for a number of years, right, like China is always at the top of the list, right? And that's one of the few topics in D.C. that sort of gets somewhat loose bipartisan consensus is a belated recognition that China is a serious geopolitical competitor. Um, 
And we now have to engage across you know, all the fronts and, and resources we have, uh, sort of instruments of national power to counter China. So that was one element is like thinking through and putting some analysis together of to what extent does Bitcoin support um, American policy objectives to counter China, right? And I think there's a clear story there. So that's one we can unpack. The other is just economic strength, right? Just we have to be strong economically. We have to have a strong economic system if we're going to sustain power uh, for the next several decades. And it's pretty clear that the current economic model, the current economic system, the global economic system, the dollar-based U.S. Treasury Reserve system is, 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 is frail <laughs> and not exactly a firm foundation upon which you could imagine projecting um, American power for, for decades to come. So those were the two aspects um, of, of that really drew me to it, was sort of countering China and then sort of reinvigorating sources of enduring national economic strength. Um, the third, which I think is also an important story, but is more, you know, kind of softer is sort of the values story. How does Bitcoin align with American values? You know, that we all, that we all, often haven't always met uh, uh, or lived up to, but that sort of are aligned with sort of the national ethos, the sort of, um, you know, political uh, values that we have at least uh, put forward as the things we stand for. Private property rights, individual liberty, rule of law, freedom of expression. And so I think there's a you know, a compelling argument to be made that Bitcoin aligns with some of those three, you know, key national security objectives to sort of, you know, counter China and, you know, improve enduring sources of national strength and promote our values around the world. Uh, and the U.S. hasn't been particularly successful at exporting those values to <laughs> other cultures uh, over the past certainly two decades. Uh, it's the one I'm least, mm -hmm. least interested in, but at the same time, I, I understand the alignment of those with, mm -hmm. uh, with Bitcoin. But I mean, even at uh, pr private property rights, that's been exposed uh, more recently mm -hmm. as uh, something that isn't entirely respected. But we can come back to that. Um, mm -hmm. Let's unpack the China thing. Yeah. You know, what is the risk with China? What is the risk to the US? What do you think policy people are considering? Certainly. So this has been a trend in motion for a number of years, um, and it both has kind of an international kind of political dimension and a sort of an economic dimension. Um, and really, you know, you can go back to, in my mind, it starts with uh, the Nixon trip to China in, uh, in the early 1970s, which not so coincidentally, you know, you know was at the same time we sort of shifted from uh, the uh, sort of gold-backed standard to kind of a pure fiat floating exchange rate system. And if you think about where the U.S. was in that, uh, in that period, you know, China and Russia as sort of strategic powers dominating Eurasia were used to be in a pretty close partnership, but always had kind of like a frenemy status. And I think we, Nixon's trip to China was kind of the f uh, major strategic victory, peeling China off of that sort of Russia strategic partnership, which is a you know, critical strategic victory for the Cold War because it divided Eurasia. And while China was relatively weak, it allowed us to sort of focus our collective efforts on, on sort of a counter-Soviet strategy, which worked, you know, essentially outspending them and leveraging the dollar system to outspend the Soviets, essentially spend them into the ground. And then what you saw in the 90s was a kind of a, a hyperpower era where the U.S. was kind of the only power really uh, that could run the world system. And so you had the Soviets were in hyperinflation, total collapse. China was strengthening, but was still very, very weak. And the 2001 was, was really the major pivot because you had China coming into the World Trade Organization. We made the most, uh, we gave the most favored nation status. And between 2001 and 2021, the story of the last 20 years has been the story of both a rising Russia and a rising China. And I think that is a key area where Russia, 
and China have sort of now becoming increasingly converging in sort of how they approach um, confrontation with the Western system. And we sort of only belatedly woken up to that. And so China has really been that same dominant partner driving that strategic long-term objective. And two key things that they've done in recent history to sort of drive that objective have been the Belt and Road Initiative, whereby back in 2013, they uh, made a fundamental shift in how they engage with the dollar system. It used to be they would take the dollars that, we, that they get from us uh, when we buy all the, all, all the goods we import from them, running these massive trade deficits, uh, and they used to recycle them into U.S. Treasuries. And that was a nice virtuous circle where we were able to keep our, our debt funding costs low. Um, but we, uh, in exchange, you know, uh, had to sort of outsource our industrial base, our manufacturing base, right? Sort of the classic Triffin's dilemma. Um, but in this case, it had a geopolitical uh, aspect to it because it was strengthening this major power in, in Asia, uh, giving them factories, giving them expertise, giving them intellectual property, uh, and really, you know, allowing them to build, build up their military. In 2013, they made a pivot from, uh, essentially, that's when, their, that's when their purchase of U.S. Treasuries peaked, and they redirected those dollar flows into overseas dollar-denominated lending. It's part of this massive campaign called the Belt, Belt and Road Initiative to spread their influence around the world and to buy up uh, and secure strategic acts, uh, access to uh, sort of hard assets, ports, land, natural resources, but also to do you know, political corruption, right, in, in, in weak governments, right, spread the money around and sort of bring, bring governments into the sort of the Chinese political orbit. Uh, and they're using our dollars to do that, right? Um, and so not a really great strategic move, right? The U.S. dollar system is essentially being weaponized against us. Um, and so that's like, that was the first move was BRI. Now the second move is the, is the digital yuan. And so this is basically a, um, a key uh, element of a longer term objective the Chinese have to d disentangle themselves from the dollar system, to, to not make themselves uh, as you know, Russia has seen, uh, uh, you know, one click away from having your Forex reserves, uh, your foreign exchange reserves just sort of deleted uh, from your account. Um, and I think this is now going to accelerate a move that had been underway, but more in kind of a latent fashion. Um, but their objectives with the, with the BRI plus the digital yuan is essentially to create a, uh, a new sphere of influence that can leverage uh, you know, their technology suite of both monetary technology, the, the, the digital yuan, as well as kind of the export of their surveillance technologies. So, you know, to run a country like China and maintain, you know, unitary control as a communist party, you need to have invested in a lot of con uh, technologies of control and surveillance. And so that's what they've done. And they were like, you know, really good at doing, you know, facial recognition and tracking everyone and monitoring everyone. And those are technologies that lots of governments around the world also want to install. And so there's a compelling kind of authoritarianism as a service that, that China is offering to governments around the world, essentially a whole kit of monetary technology, surveillance technology, as well as this sort of financial support. Uh, you, you know, you can sort of get it all in one, in one package. Uh, and essentially that's what they're trying to essentially sell around the world, which if you're the United States, um, you know, you could see it as just another, another, another country playing the same game that the British played, that the Americans played, uh, but now using 21st century technologies uh, is sort of a game of kind of neocolonialism, right? Um, and if you're the United States, that's, that's a threat to you, right? Because that's a, that's a strategic competitor on the global stage, not just like a regional competitor. And so, you know, that's, that's the China threat if you're the, kind of thinking it from, from a national security perspective. Um, and so one of the arguments we make in the, in the document is, well, people around the world don't really want the, the renminbi, right? Like 
you have to sort of either force people or bribe their leaders to get them to buy into the system. But it's not like there's a whole lot of people around the world screaming for the one. A lot of people around the world like dollars. Like she, they, they want dollars. They actually don't want their, their, local, um, their, their local currency. And, but it's very difficult to get dollars in a lot of these countries. And this is where like the strike and you know, crypto, crypto dollars and crypto dollarization is a compelling kind of private sort of organic development, not an instrument of national state power. The U.S. government has not, you know, designed this as part of their objective to or strategy to counter China. It just happened organically that people, you know, find value in these, uh, you know, dollar-based stable coins, which have a symbiosis with Bitcoin. And so to a certain extent, dollar-based stable coin pro proliferation in the emerging market is a tool for those, for those uh, countries to both disentangle themselves from this encroaching, um, you know, digital yuan system, but also to do it in a way that's uh, not necessarily tied to an equivalent U.S. system, right? It's not a U.S. CBDC versus a Chinese CBDC. It's a third independent dollar asset that they can hold. Uh, and they can, you know, now exchange it, you know, in peer-to-peer -peer ways and, and participate in an ecosystem. And I think as Bitcoin monetizes, it sort of greases the, greases the skids, greases the rails for that crypto dollarization. So there's sort of a natural symbiosis between as Bitcoin spreads and Bitcoin's adopted and the sort of industries in those countries become more sophisticated around Bitcoin and sort of the uh, different financial tools that are available, apps like Strike, that, uh, you know, the dollar sort of just comes along for the ride. It gets... And so you have this sort of, uh, you can look at a country like Nigeria as a good example of these two systems kind of starting to come into kind of, um, you know, this is kind of the battleground. And because the leadership in Nigeria, or at least, you know, I'm not an expert in, uh, in Nigerian politics, but China has made Nigeria a pretty priority target for BRI. And, you know, Nigeria has their own uh, uh, CBDC, mixed success. Um, but they have strong relationships with China. They have bilateral currency swap agreements. So like at the elite level, there's an alignment with China and uh, obviously a strategic objective to try to get the digital yuan kind of more formally uh, sort of tied in with the, with the, the Nigerian uh, CBDC. But the organic you know, individuals in the population don't want that. They're, they're using Bitcoin, they're using stable coins. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves in a country like Nigeria where you have those sort of two phenomena happening. One is sort of top down Im imposed from the government. Uh, more China kind of inserted in this sort of organic uh, dollar Bitcoin kind of phenomenon. So that's like, I think for me, going to be a test case for how these systems are sort of going to um, compete with each other. And again, entirely independent from any like US initiative. It's just happening on its own. It's as like part of my point is it's, it's, it's fighting the fight that you're not fighting and it's doing it in a, in a more effective way than you could probably ever try to do. If you try to come out with a CBDC and sell a CBDC to, to Nigerians, I don't know. Are they going to take that versus the one they've already been using for years that's already working, that already has market penetration and already has a bunch of apps and, and is, and is uh, effectively adopted? Like, just let the private sector do its thing. And it's, um, it's winning the fight uh, sort of on its own. Um, is that why there hasn't been too much over-regulation of uh, digital dollars, Tether, USDC, et cetera, because there is a recognition that it's doing this job internationally? I think... Again, the government is not a monolith. And so there's some people in the government whose their job is counter threat finance and anti-money laundering. And when that's your job, that's all you care about. You don't care about a counter, a counter China dollarization 10 year strategy. That's not your job. That's not what you get. That's not in your performance review. Your performance review is stop sanctions evasion, stop money laundering. And for you, if that's your job, then like Tether is maybe a problem for you, right? Um, now, I think there's a mixed story there, right? I, I'm not an expert on Tether. Um, but I think, you know, it's been, 
it's been, uh, you know, uh, castigated for, for certain of those nefarious uses, but I also think it's been used very uh, positively in supporting some of this kind of crypto dollarization efforts around the world. So again, it's kind of um, what your perspective is in the government is sort of what your job is, like what you're, what you're, what you're rated on and sort of what you're, uh, what you're concerned about is going to be usually a narrow, a very narrow slice and usually a very kind of like the problem of today as opposed to more of a strategic longer term objective. I think that's part of the thing I try to point out in the paper is we need to think more strategically about these things. Yes, there's going to be these problems, these sort of issues you have to understand that maybe are more like tactically relevant to particular agencies. But like, what is your approach to this phenomenon writ large? And how do you, can you take advantage of, or at least not hurt the sort of organic forces that are trending in a positive direction? Um, but yeah, I think things like stable coins are <laughs> top of mind across the board when it comes to regulations, much more so than Bitcoin per se, um, because of those very issues. Because it is a form of a dollar that's not outside, that's outside the control of the US government. And that's not exactly a new thing, right? Like the whole Euro dollar system which basically was birthed in the 50s because the Soviets needed to trade with dollars and they had bank accounts in Europe that allowed them to um, you know, store their dollars and, and trade. And those weren't you know, routed through a US bank. Uh, so there's always been offshore dollars and the majority of dollars have always been offshore through banks. But I think this is a, but after 2008, uh, one of the major reforms were to try to clamp down on sort of dollar proliferation sort of um, uh, sort of crazy derivatives and offshore kind of leverage that ultimately if it blew up, central banks would have to come in and, and bail it out. So like, if we're going to have to bail this system out, we need to control it. And so they've tried to put in mechanisms to, to limit kind of proliferation of offshore dollars. And civil coins are like now a new version of that. Uh, and so I think what you could see is regulation of stable coins, uh, especially in the United States, where they're essentially forced to hold cash equivalent, basic treasuries on their balance sheet. This is another thing I point out in the paper, which, you know, if, if you think that the U.S. government's fiscal position is not going to improve anytime soon, you're going to need to find more buyers for U.S. treasuries. Russia's not going to buy any more treasuries. China's probably not going to buy any more treasuries. Euro area, eh, they got their own issues. Um, hedge funds will buy treasuries as much as they can trade it. Um, uh, and so you've got a bunch of entities like pension funds and insurance companies that you can force to hold treasuries like banks because they essentially have to have a certain amount of quote-unquote safe and liquid collateral. Well, hey, look, there's stablecoin that you, there's like another buyer, you can force them to buy treasuries. So as like another entity, you can sort of uh, cram treasuries into, uh, stable coins are great, right? So I think uh, they're gonna regulate stable coins in some fashion. Um, and I'm not a, I don't have a crystal ball to see how much that's going to um, compete with or become intertwined with some CBDC. But I think there is going to be something like whitelisted regulated stable coins uh, that are going to have to have some, and that's where the fight is now, right? How much do they have to be registered, as, you know, have to have a banking charter and what are those, all, do they need all those other rules, but they don't make loans per se. So that's where the fight's going to be. I think there's going to be some resolution to that probably though in the, in the near term. And then, yeah, if you're thinking a few years ahead, you're going to see, um, you know, proliferation of dollar-based stable coins around the world. And that's actually going to be good for the U.S. to the extent that now you have a new demand source for our treasuries. And so if you think about it, it's actually as Bitcoin monetizes, if Bitcoin gets bigger, the demand for dollar-based stablecoins will also get bigger. People want to trade, just the overall market uh, is going to get larger, which means as Bitcoin gets bigger, there's more demand because of the regulation for US treasuries. And so there's a synergy then you could imagine that engineering through the stablecoin regulation between, okay, Bitcoin's allowed to succeed and grow, 
but we're going to put in these mechanisms that essentially hitch the treasury market to its growth to a certain extent. And so as Bitcoin monetizes, the endogenous demand in the system for U.S. treasuries also rises. And so there, instead of thinking of the U.S. Uh, of the Bitcoin as a threat to the dollar, it's, you know, at least if they keep this uh, mechanism engineered correctly, it could be sort of mutually beneficial. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after. And also for every dollar you spend over 50,000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it is Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded. And now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S, and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. So what was your response to the China threat within uh, your report? Because... 
one of the things we were discussing recently, uh, myself and Danny, was that I don't know if you've seen Balaji's com, um, mm-hmm. comments regarding ascending and descending nations. We mm-hmm. need to stop thinking of first and second and third world. There's ascending mm-hmm. and descending nations. And there's certainly an argument that uh, China's an ascending nation and perhaps the US is a descending mm-hmm. nation. And one of the reasons that China is perhaps winning at the moment because it has so much control, because it is so authoritarian. Mm-hmm. And for the US to be able to compete with that, it's not like US is going to go down a control route. Mm-hmm. And are they going to do a better job of control? So if they aren't, does a pendulum swing the complete other way and, and it wins on a freedom? You mm-hmm. know, traditional American values mm-hmm. of freedom and decentralization, the republic is decentralized. Uh, America is traditionally considered a, a free country, free speech, free mm-hmm. values of freedom. Is that how it wins? Is, is, that, is yeah. that the counter effect to almost not push maximum freedom, but as much freedom as possible and try and sell that around the world, which comes with free currency, you know, with a... Mm-hmm. With a currency that is free that comes without surveillance linked to it i think that i, th- I sort of also think in time scales because i think it's important to separate what we th- what we can plausibly expect to happen in the next you know 12 18 24 months versus what's going to happen more in like a longer term and i think that hypothesis is plausible uh, over the longer term just the the, the forces of decentraliz- decentralization not just in bitcoin but just in technology sort of just general social attitude that I think is now um, kind of irreversible is going to lead to in America and some other countries like that general political force. But I think it's going to take time to get there. And I do worry that in the short term, especially if you have periods of acute crisis, you know, up to and including war, governments don't relax controls in wartime, right? They tighten controls in wartime. Uh, it's just the nature of when you're fighting a sort of strategic competition or even existential competition, all bets are off. And central powers need to consolidate power in order to try to fight that competition. So that's kind of what I worry about in the near term is you can imagine scenarios where, um, you know, we, we get into an acute crisis, geopolitical confrontation, not just with Russia, but potentially other states like China. And, you know, in those scenarios, the central government in the United States is not going to, uh, you know, they're going to be acutely aware of anything that could sort of disrupt the order. And that's where I worry about it. And that's part of my objective is to sort of um, diffuse that sort of latent impulse to sort of cramp down on something because you're sort of in a crisis environment, right? And sort of, okay, think about it strategically ahead of time, come up with smart policies before a crisis situation so you don't make like ill-considered rash moves, um, you know, in a, in a crisis environment. And so that's kind of, you know, but again, you never know, right, how that's going to evolve. But I do think over the longer term, yeah, Balaji's thesis is well-founded, although I've studied China quite a bit, been to China a number of times. And again, it's hard to... It's an easy thing to model with some numbers. And if you look at Ray Dalio's numbers, and he's got some great charts in his new book of sort of rising powers and declining powers and some of those key metrics, sort of how to measure relative power. And I think those are pretty definitive. And if you look at the chart, you can see kind of American power like peaked like 20 years ago, and it's been sort of in a pretty rapid descent. And China's power has been in a pretty rapid ascent. And we're not quite crossing, but we're close. And you can look at all sorts of measures, right? Like global trade, GDP, Across a number of dimensions, China is rising to become a peer competitor in the U.S. global system. And the global system has not evolved to accommodate that yet. And the question is, what accommodations will be forced? What accommodations will be um, made? And I think that's where the U.S. is trying to figure out, right? How do we balance? Because we don't want to get into a war. I don't think anyone wants to get into a war. But it's like, okay, how do you 
uh, but history teaches us, right? Rising, when rising powers confront status quo powers, usually ends well badly, right? Um, the, the sort of classic Thucydides trap. And so how do we avoid that, I think, is the key strategic geopolitical question. Um, I also think what this crisis is telling us with Russia is, if you look at the, uh, the world system, you know, it's very different now, as I mentioned, like Russia and China really rising in tandem over the past 20 years and forming kind of a Eurasian power block that's now has a no limit strategic partnership. Um, you do have like, like, like real politique, right? You can look at sort of the moral, the moral judgment aside, just look at like hard power, right? Russia is essentially has, you know, control over the marginal cost of a uh, barrel of oil and, and food essentially. Um, China has marginal control over the cost of goods, production, and labor. And the US has control over the marginal production of dollar and credit. And when those sort of three, stool, three legs of the stool of the global economic system were kind of in frenemy mode, then the system worked. Uh, you know, global trade, globalization, dollarization, all kind of worked. Um, and now we're sort of seeing those, uh, those core elements of the power system not just become like disaligned, but like rupture. Radically, yeah. and and that's where like the you know events of the past two weeks have a, have sort of a strategic like we can't go backwards uh, kind of this is now a disjunctive rupture in the global system and we're still trying to figure out what the consequences of those are going to be uh, and it's not going to be just an easy resolution to the way things were and it's like a fundamental shift in how the global system is going to have to reorder itself and I think it places renewed uh, sort of urgency for the United States to figure out oh well this the, like. The power we, we held in that system, the control over the marginal cost of dollar, dollar credit, was an extremely, it's like if you compare to the other, the other two, was like the dominant power. <laughs> it allowed us to price those things. It allowed us to control the demand for those things, because so you can essentially control the marginal price of those things. Um, but when sort of one, one element of that stool says, no, we're not playing the game anymore, uh, you need, it, that, that, that system isn't going to work anymore. And so um, you can imagine scenarios and some, you know, senior, uh, you know, well-respected analysts on Wall Street have, you know, woken up to this just recently and started to see, well, wh what does this mean for the dollar system? What does this mean for uh, the fact that China can now essentially gobble up cheap commodities from Russia at a time when the rest of the world is going to face runaway inflation? So we're going to face $150 barrel oil or something like that or more. Uh, and food riots uh, because, you know, wheat and, and phosphate and, um, and other critical commodity exports are going to be severely constrained. As you can see, runaway inflation in, uh, you know, net, net importers uh, of stuff. We have to import most of our stuff. Luckily, energy we're pretty good on, but the rest of the world, um, not so much. Uh, whereas China, but we're still very vulnerable to kind of acute inflation of those things. Whereas uh, uh, China can just buy up cheap Russian commodities, right? This is almost a, analogous to uh, it's like the subprime, uh, the subprime crisis, right? Where you have, uh, you, you thought that you had, you know, good mortgages and bad mortgages, and they're basically all rated the same. So you could essentially trade them the same. Uh, that's oversimplifying. But basically you had, uh, the market did not uh, discount the value of uh, subprime mortgages appropriately. And then when they ha all of a sudden had to value them appropriately, a whole bunch of other derivatives blew up. Now in the commodities market, like Russian oil is subprime oil. It's, it's now bad oil, you can't trade it. And so there's a lot of potential financial risks that could come from that. Um, but what it also means is now, like, you know, essentially China can buy up distressed assets. And in this case, they're core commodities, food, oil, other kind of critical inputs. And China, you know, has a, has a voracious appetite for those things. Um, and as a, you know, look at it from a strategic perspective, China may be, I mean, Russia may be um, 
you know, really bogging themselves down in Ukraine. I, you know, hard to say how that's going to play out, but it doesn't seem to be like it's going to result in a net win for the Russian economy. So net net, they're going to be weaker and more reliant on China. So now China gets essentially, you know, to tuck Russia under their wing um, and get access to cheaper commodity imports while the West faces sort of runaway inflation that's going to really strain our fiscal position and potentially threaten, uh, you know, our core monetary structure. Um, so I think that's, that's why I worry about in, the, in like the near term is just what happened the past two weeks took these sort of longstanding trends of a rising China and kind of this Eurasian alignment of power uh, that eventually was going to challenge sort of the global order uh, and then brought everything to a head. And then when you have a crisis like this, you have, you make strategic decisions on a weekend, right? It's like, just like the Lehman Brothers, you, you know, crisis happens on a Friday and then bailouts on a, on a Sunday. You know, you had invasion on like a Wednesday or Thursday and you had, you know, Central Bank of Russia being, uh, being sanctioned on like a Sunday. And that was like an unprecedented strategic decision that they made very quickly, which, you know, I'm sure you could argue in history books about the merits of that, but that's a strategic decision that you made very quickly and that you probably could not have conceived of the sort of second and third order consequences. And that's what we're, now we're gonna be seeing in the next few weeks and months is what are the second and third order consequences to the global system, the global order uh, as, as these uh, sort of um, cascading effects unfold. And what, it, what is the role of, in Bitcoin against Russia on that long-term mm. scale? What, what is it you think the role is? So for me, on a long term, I, I, I hesitate to make long term predictions because I think, especially in the situation we're in right now, there's so many scenarios. Like the aperture of possibility has opened up much wider than I thought like three months ago. Uh, and so the range of scenarios goes from, you know, really, really, really bad to like decently good. Um, I, I, right now, I don't have a, a hard assessment of where it's going to uh, shake out. But I do think, you know, if Bitcoin is successful, you know, in the near term, this is kind of, you know, we have to separate out kind of time scales, you know, I just, it just needs to act as an alternative. Because I think one of the things that the, the lesson of both kind of, I say Canada, as well as the Russian Central Bank move is that what you thought was like a risk-free asset isn't a risk-free asset. Uh -huh. And the world economic system was predicated on there being risk-free assets, namely dollars in the bank and U.S. treasuries for foreign central banks that could be like your just go-to savings vehicle, whether you're a nation state or, or, or an individual. And what we're finding is that there is a risk to those risk-free assets, that there is a tail risk that maybe isn't so small that now you have to discount, whether you're an individual citizen or you're a central bank reserve manager. And so individual citizens, their decisions en masse have a collective impact, but takes some time. Foreign central bank reserves managers they also have a lag, but those are going to be more strategically important. And so what, what for me is going to be fascinating is obviously gold is probably going to be the first thing to go to as like a neutral reserve asset, um, at least in the near term, just because that's like the next closest thing. But I do think, it, you know, you could see on the margin, you know, certain countries like at Singapore, you could see, um, you know, other maybe more forward leading countries in the Middle East that decide, hey, you know what, maybe we'll take a, a 5% allocation in our reserves to Bitcoin. And I think that's what was a year ago that was completely hypothetical. Like I would have been like, yeah, maybe one day some central bank, like that's not just like playing around or some uh, kind of podunk country, but like a legit central bank with a material amount of capital moving into Bitcoin. It was entirely a theoretical proposition. I think what's happened in the past two weeks has made that now like plausible in, I don't know how long, but you could see it in the next, uh, in the next year or two. Um, 
And I think that's, that to me is kind of a game changer, right? It's like, uh, you know, that, that, that just sort of shows, uh, you know, and what that means, whether Bitcoin can accommodate that, right? That's a matter of just, okay, now the sort of, it's now going to play in a different game, right? Now it's going to play at a whole nother level. Uh, and I just think, you know, things happen faster than necessarily even like hardcore Bitcoiners are like psychologically prepared for. Um, and what are those institutional structures response to that going to be? Institutional structures don't like change to happen too quickly. They want it to happen on a predictable course. They want to have, they want to have strategic plans that have like a multi-year, you know, set of, 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 of actions. You know, bureaucrats don't want to have to work on the weekends, right? So like they don't want to see this system just break. And so I think it, it behooves sort of policymakers, at least right now, because I think the timescales have sort of certainly been uh, uh, dialed up, that they don't have time to just sort of um, coast, that they actually have to get smart on this thing and understand what's happening um, and, you know, come up with a coherent strategy. And is it plausible for the U.S. government to take a 5% position? So, again, lots of things are possible. I also think that it may not even be necessary. You know, we have plurality of the mining hash here. We probably have a plurality, maybe the majority of actual Bitcoin in custody, whether it's in institutional grade custody, individual holders uh, in the United States. And as long as we remain committed to the rule of law, like we stand to gain from our national balance sheet from Bitcoin's appreciation as a reserve asset. Right? Well, also, the innovation and the companies, the majority of the large Bitcoin companies are here. Exactly. Right. And, and not just the sort of market value, but the intellectual capital right? Yeah. that people are attracted to come to the United States. It's a safe place for Bitcoin. It's a safe place for innovation. Like that is a compelling theme that even in this absence of these geopolitical uh, trends would be really positive. And I think it's just, you know, places even more wind behind those sales. So, yeah, to a certain extent, you know, I can imagine the United States having uh, some allocation to Bitcoin in the far future. But I'm not sure that it makes a material difference as long as they... Like for me, it's I, I want the majority of Bitcoin to be owned by individuals, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, um, if the Federal Reserve eventually, you know, they'd have to change some of their rules or hold some special purpose um, investment vehicle to hold an asset like Bitcoin. I don't think it's a plausible thing in the near term, um, especially because I think the way that it's going to evolve is Bitcoin as a reserve asset in the near term is useful for the United States to buttress trust in the U.S. government because the reason you hold a treasury security in the first place is you have trust in the U.S. government. They're going to pay you back. They're going to maintain relative, you know, a relatively stable fiscal and monetary, uh, uh, you know, policy. And so you have confidence that you put your money in a treasury. You're going to, you know, get your coupon paid out. You're not going to like lose in real terms. Well, we're obviously seeing kind of a, a structural trend towards financial repression where bondholders are going to have to get hosed, right? And and we put in a whole bunch of uh, kind of rules, Basel regulations, other kind of capital requirements that sort of uh, lock up the big pools of capital and force them to buy treasuries, which makes treasuries like a less attractive asset to hold. But if Bitcoin can help, at least on the margin, sustain a bid for treasuries in this sort of transition period, right, where people, if there's a lot of Bitcoin that's worth a lot more in the United States, that that improves the taxable base for the U.S. government, like on, on in, in the long term, which improves the fiscal health of the country, right? Essentially, you're recapitalizing. And to a certain extent, if you think about, you know, right now, like the two candidate neutral reserves ass assets that exist is gold and Bitcoin. Well, we hold a lot more Bitcoin relative to the rest of the world than we hold gold relative to the rest of the world. Uh, and so if you were to like monetize gold and sort of shift to like a new gold peg standard, Russia's going to win a lot. India's going to win a lot. China's going to win a lot. Yeah, we'll, we'll win too because we have a decent amount of gold, but net-net, our adversaries gain more than us. 
if gold were to be remonetized. And a lot of gold bugs, Peter Schiff would win, right? So we, we can't let that happen. Uh, <laughs> whereas Bitcoin, you know, China's kicked Bitcoin out. So if Bitcoin were to monetize, you know, marginally more than gold were to be remonetized, U.S. would gain disproportionately relative to China. And so if that's if that's the end game of this monetary phase transition to a new a new regime where you have a neutral reserve asset that underpins still fiat currencies and, and treasury issuance, then Bitcoin is sort of our ace in the hole, right? The game that Russia and China seem to be moving towards is a multi-currency regime where uh, gold is pegged to essentially the price of commodities. So they control hard assets in their mind. They, they control hard assets like gold, they control hard assets like commodities, energy, food, et cetera. We control the printing press and we've been able to kind of uh, keep that system going. But if the world shifts to a hard asset-backed regime, they're gonna be net winners in that regime. And so that's why the US is fighting so hard against it, right? Because we would lose if, you know, if that were to be the new regime or would there be a rebalance of power? I wouldn't say we would like lose strategically, but it would be a new, a new, a new balance of power arrangement. But also, uh, large parts of the, the world would, as you mentioned, pre prefer to have access to dollars. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that with Tether. Mm -hmm. We've seen that in certain markets whereby there's high inflation. People talk about, oh, buy Bitcoin, but rea reality is they want Tether. You speak mm -hmm. to Alex Gladstein, if you're in Palestine, you want, you want Tether. Mm -hmm. You want stable coins. If you're on Turkey, you want Tether. If you're on Argentina, you want Tether. Mm -hmm. You might have some Bitcoin, but that relationship between Bitcoin for the long term, mm -hmm. dollars for the short term, and the fact that most of these exchanges have that natural on-off between mm -hmm. dollar and Bitcoin, which doesn't really happen with the digital one and Bitcoin, mm -hmm. actually strengthens the US on both fronts. Mm -hmm. So there's 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 a logical reason to promote Bitcoin and have the world remonetize on a Bitcoin standard. Add to that, the US tends to lead the way on policy mm -hmm. for the rest of the world. If the US banned Bitcoin or over-regulated Bitcoin, Europe's going to follow, other parts of the world are going to follow. But if the US leads the way with that, mm -hmm. perhaps you're going to see countries, certainly the UK, because we're kind of lapdogs for, the, for mm -hmm. the US, sadly. I can almost see our policy shifting to match the US's. So there's a massive incentive on the economic side to become pro-Bitcoin, stablecoin at the same time. Yeah, and there's competing, like there are going to be, there are going to be certain winners and certain losers, right? There's certain, um, like Wall Street has sort of, uh, you know, pegged their fortunes to the sort of treasury uh, machine, right? Like U.S. treasuries are the foundational collateral asset in the global dollar derivative system. And there's a lot of money to be made by essentially being close to new treasury issuance and then being part of that sort of whole chain of repo and reverse repo transactions that allow you to, you know, collect a spread on every transaction made with a, with a treasury around the world. And treasuries, that's their primary use case, is as sort of funding collateral in this massive global dollar system. And so those people that play in that world, you know, they have some of their fortunes pegged to treasuries need to stay, stay valuable. I think my point is you want to eventually do this transition where you just need a new reserve asset at the base of that, of, of, of that funding pyramid. But a reserve asset that actually can sustain that actually has, has people's faith in it, right? And if people lose faith in the viability of the treasury long-term, well then the whole global, global dollar system can collapse. And so that's where the Fed has been in sort of stopgap mode ever since really, I mean, you could peg it to the taper tantrum 2013, but really accelerated in March, 2020, where like everything that they've tried to do is try to patch another leaky hole in the treasury dollar system. And all these obscure uh, kind of technocratic language that they put in things like the RRP reverse re, re, the reverse repo program, the standing uh, the standing repo uh, uh, facility SRF, 
uh, FIMA, uh, the Foreign uh, uh, and International Manage- uh, Monetary Authority, all, uh, Central Clearing, which is going to be the next thing that, that they come up with, are all these desperate attempts to try to keep a lid or keep the treasury market well managed, um, which tells me that there's inherent, they recognize it's weak, right? Like you wouldn't need to do all of these emergency facilities if you had confidence in the reserve asset. And, and I think that was like, for me, like a longer term trend. The things that just happened with Russia and the central bank sanctions, I think is also going to be a light bulb that goes off in a lot of other people's minds about confidence in that foundational reserve asset. And so if you have another foundational reserve asset that can you can sort of start to monetize that you control more of, you can sort of keep the system from breaking. It doesn't have to be a radical collapse rebuild, although that that could happen and you want to avoid that. So you want to try to you know think ahead of time and think through a strategy so you can transition to a new system with that with minimal disruption. The other key point about Bitcoin is as a reserve asset, like individuals in Nigeria can't hold a US Treasury, right? Only like their central banks. And so there's an inherent um, uh, power imbalance that that system sets up, where the reserve asset of the world can only be held by certain inst- by certain institutions, which means those people have the power. If Bitcoin, as an initial reserve asset, is held by a majority of the population as opposed to the central government, that that shifts the global balance of power. And I don't think we've thought through the second order effects of that, where not just like a money, which is useful for medium of exchange, but most people don't spend all their money in a day, right? Most of your wealth is in a reserve asset, is in something that you think is going to hold long-term store value. That's where the majority of like the economic energy of the world exists. And so when that exists in a form that's like in Bitcoin, I think you have dramatic second-order effects that would be positive for democracy and, um, and as sort of uh, individual participation in, the, in, their, in, their, in their governments. Are there other parts of the economic side of things we've not talked about here? Economic inclusion? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much uh, do you consider wealth disparity as a part of national security? Very much so. I mean, if you look at you know, some of those long-term trends, I think also come from Ray Dalio's book of uh, kind of inequality structurally and how it aligns with periods of social instability, right? And, and you can sort of see this on the map, like 1930s, rising inequality, period of populism, rise of fascism, rise of communism, sort of social order starts to break down. Very bad for national security. And I think, you know, it's not too much of a stretch to look at what we've been over the past few decades in the United States and other countries around the world, where as rising inequality uh, has sort of split the partisan divide even more sort of um, uh, violently, uh, you've seen these sort of pernicious social effects, which start to have impacts on your national security, right? If you can't, if you don't have your house in order, how are you supposed to protect power, right? If you can't run an effective election, or there's questions about an election, how are you going to spread democracy around the world, right? So I think those do have sort of critical impacts on your you know, ability to, to maintain pa- uh, sort of effective power around the world. Uh, and so if you don't have stable society, if you don't have, uh, you know, a reasonably, um, uh, you know, fair distribution of wealth, you're going to have social instability. And that, 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 that weakens you as a country. And with Bitcoin, you obviously see an opportunity for changing wealth disparity or reducing wealth disparity. I mean, it, it's hard, right? So the topic of wealth inequality and income inequality are kind of different things. I think net-net, the people that are going to gain from Bitcoin, you know, at least in my hope, and I think this is sort of relatively borne out, are, you know, they were not hedge fund billionaires, right? These, it, like a few of them got into it, but most institutional Wall Street were not the early Bitcoin adopters. It was, you know, cyberpunks, people kind of on the fringes of, of society. Um, so you have a rebalancing of wealth from you know, legacy elite to maybe a new elite. Um, and I think net net you see over time because Bitcoin's finite issuance. If you want to, you know, pay with Bitcoin, you have to give it up, which means there's inherent redistribution of Bitcoin in a Bitcoin economy 
from people that have Bitcoin, people that don't have Bitcoin. You gotta sell a good, good service to get to Bitcoin, but that leads to a distribution of Bitcoin. Now, overall, long term, you would, you know, questions of inequality are not just questions of what the monetary system are. Like those are that's a critical input to it, but it's also what's the what's the prevailing political jurisdiction? Um, what's that system, right? If it's a if it's a heavily uh, kind of redistributive system, then you could see you know, less wealth inequality. If it's not a redistributive system, you can see more wealth inequality. So I don't think Bitcoin itself answers the question or strictly determines a certain distribution of wealth. It changes kind of the structural um, pattern of how, you know, Bitcoin would get distributed in an economy. But ultimately, wealth inequality comes down to politics. It comes down to uh, whether there's a sufficient, um, uh, you know, legal regime that people buy into that, that they participate in that involves transfer of wealth. And you know, to a certain extent, Bitcoin does enable exit, as, as we said, more than the existing system does. So you could see some more of a reordering around different political systems where people say, hey, yeah, I'm more communally oriented. So I'm going to participate in this system over here that is going to involve you know, more, more, you know, more distribution of wealth or, or not. Or I'm going to associate with a different system that, that, that has, you know, that's more, like, say, libertarian oriented. So I don't think Bitcoin itself will determine which of those, you know, succeeds, but I think it opens up the possibility for more of those types of social experiments to take place and people to say associate with different political orders that they find in align with their values. Okay. Uh, let's talk about energy security yep. and the role of Bitcoin within the grid, within uh, stability of the grid. Talk to me about that part because I, I yeah. this is a growing area of interest. Uh, obviously, we've had Troy Cross on mm-hmm. the show. We've uh, had him again with uh, Nick Carter. I spoke mm-hmm. to... Um, Margot Pires. Yes. Um, and this is an interesting conversation because mm-hmm. there are people who don't want to buy into this because they're anti-SG, they think it's propaganda, whatever. But at the same time, it's a fascinating thesis mm-hmm. that um, that Troy and Andrew have come up with that other people are taking a lot of interest in. Uh, and obviously it's covered within your document. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it at the start of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that was fascinating to me. Like I had no idea about this you know, really six or nine months ago. And it really was sort of revelatory to me to think about how Bitcoin could have a transformative effect on the energy system. Um, and, and it's sort of the near-term things we can see right now, but then it's also sort of the far future, which I know Bitcoiners love to speculate about, you know, this hyper-Bitcoinized world, future, future of human civilization. You can have those great sort of uh, bar conversations. Um, but I think practically speaking, in the near term, there are some really tangible and material things we're going to see Bitcoin have effects in the energy grid in the next few years. You're already seeing some like you know pretty powerful case studies in like Texas uh, in, in Aircat where a number of companies are engaging uh, you know in very sophisticated ways with the grid and with renewable development and so you see I think a few different patterns of development and that's how it sort of speaks to the sophistication of the market here and how this sort of industry has sort of popped uh, I wouldn't say out of nowhere but become like a real force and a relevant uh, consideration for how like energy systems regional energy systems do some of their planning and their long term. Uh, kind of design. And so things like monetizing stranded uh, you know, energy assets, right? Folks have talked at length about um, like flare gas mining, uh, uh, stranded uh, sort of hydro, um, stranded wind where it can't be connected to the grid. And so you can monetize the wind generation before you've had time to build out connection to the grid. Um, but then once you're actually connected to the grid, uh, certain grids, especially in Texas, have become much more sophisticated about offering what are called ancillary services, which, you know, grids are, um, you know, dynamic systems. And they try to keep things to like a stable frequency, roughly 60 hertz. And when load comes on or load comes off, 
that frequency control can bounce out of their kind of threshold. And they have a bunch of demand response programs where they tell some factory or, or industrial production to turn off or turn back on. And that tries to keep the grid stabilized. Bitcoin is a unique form of controllable load because they can sort of scale up and down their, 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 their power demand. Um, and that's exceptionally valuable to the grid because now they can have a much more fine-tuned response to keep the grid stable. Uh, and as we bring more uh, generation, electricity generation onto the grid, to meet some of our net zero objectives in the future, we need to have much more flexible load. I think Troy Cross's number was like 10 times more flexible load on the grid. Uh, and right now, like the typical sources of flexible load cannot do that. They cannot, we can't just create 10 more pulping, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of warehouses. Like Bitcoin's the only industry that could plausibly scale 10X uh, and offer uh, that type of flexible load to the grid. So it's like, to me, it's like a strategic um, sort of, sort of manna fell from the sky. Like we had this impossible goal. We need to, you know, 10X the amount of flexible load on a grid. There's no industry that exists that can do that for us. Bitcoin shows up and it's like, yes, we're like literally designed to do that. You've got the grin that most people have because I think it's because it's kind of ironic mm -hmm. because Bitcoin historically been uh, attacked mm -hmm. because of its energy usage. And now it provides this new solution something that Satoshi would never have planned. Mm -hmm. We originally started with GPU mining. So to get to this point where the the attack vector has now become the defense is, is super interesting. That's why I'm mm -hmm. like, I always see the grin on people when we discuss this. <laughs> I think there's gonna be a lot of those stories too. Like we're still at the, the first inning of this, yeah. right? And you know, no one could have predicted this a few years ago. And so I, I think about what else are we not seeing that's uh -huh. gonna be coming down the line as Bitcoin scales? And what are those sort of second and third order Kind of in, in industries and industrial effects that uh, that we're just now starting to maybe get an inkling of, and one of them that I see a little bit further online is like chip manufacturing, right? Yep. Again, also critically connected to sort of strategic national security is chip manufacturing, semiconductor fabs. You know, right now the world relies pretty much on TSMC in Taiwan, which itself relies on like ALMS in in uh, in uh, that that's a Dutch company um, for like some of the most advanced technology on the planet, like the most advanced technology human beings have is semiconductor manufacturing pretty much. Um, and the world was relying on this one factory, which pr pr makes something like Taiwan much more strategically important than it otherwise would be, right? If there was no chip, if, if TSMC was in South Korea or was in the United States, there would still be like the need to sort of have the two one country, two systems thing. And yeah, it would be worried eventually about, you know, a Taiwan takeover, but it wouldn't have as much of like a critical national security impact to our supply chains. Most of our, you know, high technology gadgets require these these semiconductors. Well, we've so, seen the issue with logistics around semiconductors mm -hmm. during the pandemic. We've seen the issues with in a range of things, cars unable mm -hmm. to get uh, their chips ready for because most cars now are, are essentially computers. Mm -hmm. There's been I tried to buy my dad a car and there was a delay. Like a lot of this shit's happening, and I think you're seeing a, a deglobalization trend underway. I think. I also worry it's going to be somewhat disorderly in the next few years because, you know, conflicts force people to a form of autarky that maybe they didn't have time to prepare their domestic economies for. And so you see a lot of distortions in, uh, in the markets where you don't have time to say reshore production. And like a semiconductor manufacturer takes several years, if not many, many years. Like we cannot just pick up TSMC and relocate it to Arizona. We're trying to create some, some of those uh, factories, uh, the, the, the sort of fabric, fabrication facilities in, in, uh, in Arizona. Um, they're multi-year projects. And even then, they usually rely on critical inputs and skills, 
right? Like you can take, you can put the machinery there, but you need highly trained engineers. You need some of the world's most in-demand PhD scientists who are going to be bid for by China, right? And China has been offering TSMC engineers like NFL level salaries. And so one of the things I'm worried about is that, yeah, we can rebuild these chips here, uh, these chip fabrication facilities here, but like those engineers in Taiwan, would they rather work, you know, just in the mainland, they speak the language, same culture, same food for a ton of money or relocate to Arizona? I don't know. It's gonna be a tough sell. Uh, so I worry that we don't have like long term, we need to think through more about not just like the hard energy production or the hard sort of facilities production, but like the STEM production where we need to create engineers. We need to create like scientists, <laughs> uh, like critically human civilization is essentially downstream of technology, which is downstream of physics. And so if we're not investing in science research and physicists and scientists, we're going to lose in the, in, the, in the long game, no matter how much money you throw at building a, a chip fab. So in, in my mind, like this is like where you start thinking about the second and third order effects of Bitcoin is like, well, Bitcoiners, just like say the Defense Department, has an extreme incentive of removing that single point of failure or suppressing costs. So that means vertically integrating your chip design, your chip production. So you can imagine a scenario where Bitcoin is, you know, driving even more powerfully the incentives in the market to, you know, innovate in those in that sort of environment, but also, you know, bring it into a jurisdiction that they think is politically reliable. And maybe Taiwan is not politically reliable um, in, in the in the long term. So. That's where you see Bitcoin you know, itself as a market forces supporting national security uh, uh, endeavors, but doing it you know, on their own dime, essentially. Uh, and so if you want some support to do that, maybe help Bitcoin uh, succeed and it will you know, uh, act as a force enabler for those objectives. These, uh, these changes to industry, talking about mining, stabilizing the grid, mm -hmm. the chips, and, uh, and talking about the fact there's going to be multiple other industries that are going to be supported or stabilized with Bitcoin. I think that's one of the most fascinating things about Bitcoin mm -hmm. now is that it's gone beyond the point of just peer-to-peer -peer money. But actually, it's this entire organic beast that is changing so mm -hmm. many things we're not prepared for. And to, to me, it fascinates me. And I think the other part is the social effects, right? Of like course. you see, I mean, Austin, you know, the city we're in, is you know the sort of the the network effect, the sort of intangible cultural effect of having a new industry get created. There's the companies that get created. There's the innovation. There's the capital uh, raises. You know all that's great, jobs, money. But then there's like these sort of intangible cultural energy, right? And sort of ultimately, societies need that in order to survive long term. You, it's not just dollars and cents. You need um, a sense of cultural objectives. You need to have uh, you know the flourishing that then comes from having wealth, right? Then you can invest in things that are maybe not like pure necessities. You can invest in things like art and, and music and have other cultural production. Modern uh, art? Eh, you know, to each their own, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not an art critic. Uh, I, I want to buy a Rothko with Bitcoin. I've got my, I've got my five-year-old's paintings on the, on, the, on the refrigerator. Those are my favorite art, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I think, you know, cities like Austin are a really interesting kind of leading edge example of how you can have Bitcoin manifest a kind of more intangible cultural impact, which, you know, cities have an economic incentive to generate, right? I think you've seen mayors start to compete for this. They, they, maybe they don't even understand what Bitcoin is. They get confused sometimes, you know, crypto, whatever. Um, but I think you're seeing net net like the general evolution of recognizing this as a trend, not just a technology trend, you know, peer-to-peer -peer money trend, not just like a neutral reserve asset for the world on kind of this geopolitical level, but just as a cultural phenomenon. It's a social, it's a social phenomenon at its heart. Um, and that 
that's just getting started, I think, right? Like Bitcoiners have been around for a while. Bitcoiners talk to other Bitcoiners about Bitcoin all the time. It's hard to imagine how that would, how that's going to play out when there's 10 times more Bitcoiners or hundred times, you know, more, more Bitcoiners, right? Like what that, what that means for the broader sort of cultural production. Um, and that's what I'm also excited about, right? It's kind of more that sort of, uh, that's the impossible predict part of it. Okay. Talk to me about American values. Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned it's not the strongest part of it, but it's still relevant. Yeah. Well, I think, again, this is where, you know, you can be cynical. You can say it, at the end of the day, it's just hard power, just money. And that's what makes people make decisions. Right. So I don't want to oversell the values piece. Uh, because I recognize at the end of the day, people respond to incentives. But I do think part of at least what we hold up as our sort of national ethos is worth investing in and worth finding any tools we can actually apply to support it. And I think, you know, folks like Alex Gladstein, the Human Rights Foundation, have really articulated, articulated this in the sense that Bitcoin is not just like a human rights um, messaging tool. It's not like you're just doing a, an initiative to generate awareness and fundraising. It's like a tool. It's a tangible resource and uh, a tool that people can use to better themselves. And so that, I think, when we say Bitcoin is freedom money, there's one layer that's just kind of just part of the like abstract kind of, oh, I, I, can, I can hold it, I can transact with it. It's, it, it enables that sort of um, idea of freedom. But for me, it's like tangible freedom. Like, do you actually have the tools, the technology, and the wherewithal to have autonomy, to actually, you know, live your life the way you want to live your life. And that's like, like practical freedom, right? And do you have a practical tool that can enable that freedom? And so that's where, for me, where rubber meets the road, right? Where Bitcoin as a freedom tool is not just like a, you know, highfalutin uh, kind of statement, but it's like, okay, like Jack Mahler's, right? Like developing a technology that gives a new capability in the hands of individuals around the world they didn't have before that enables a certain type of kind of autonomy that didn't exist before. Freedom is going up like in a measurable way, right? Not just sort of in an abstract conceptual way. Um, and so that's for me the more powerful relevance of Bitcoin uh, as a, an enabler of American values is like it actually allows us to tangibly spread those values. Not just as like a human rights campaign, we flew in some VIPs and we had a big dinner and we talked about you know uh, human rights and you know we went home. It's like, oh no, there's actually a leaf behind. There's a tool that people now didn't now have that they didn't have before. Um, and the U.S. government has spent a lot of money over the years trying to develop tools like that. And a lot of them have been not very effective. Uh, or we sort of throw money at, at the problem and it's not very useful. Um, you know, lots of stories about kind of just sort of wasted aid money. Um, well, here's a tool that's sort of being organically adopted. And when people adopt something, they mean it's valuable to them, right? Uh, and when they use it in their day-to-day -day life, it's much, more it's much more impactful than sort of it's just sort of being airdropped and then forgotten about. Um, so I think that's, to me, the more powerful story of Bitcoin alignment with American values is, yeah, we can tell the narrative it's in alignment with kind of the core ethos, but the more powerful aspect of it's actually useful. Um, and that's, I think, like the key takeaway. Well, it's, you're essentially exporting freedom to the world. Yeah, in a certain sense, you want to give people, and that's, I think, goes back to the, the, the geopolitical conversation also translates to individuals, right? And the current system around the world is like, resources are naturally not naturally concentrated and concentratable and systems of government and systems of power are going to find all the mechanisms they can to try to concentrate those resources and when the money system 
such as it's been designed, relies on a reserve asset that only a few select institutions can control and the limits of access are extremely high. And therefore the knock-on effects of the distribution of wealth and power are associated with that become concentrated. That a Bitcoin uh, you know, adoption acts as a decentral, decentralizing force, but that empowers individuals around the world. And, and that, you know, will run into frictions. It's not, I don't think like, and I'm also realist enough that I don't think it's necessarily an omnipotent force. So I don't think it's inevitable per se, maybe in a long enough time frame, but I think it's a powerful force that didn't exist before. And to the extent that like the United States desires the, 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 the outcome that's, that that force is achieving on its own, should remove the barriers to its success. So I think net net, like I don't think the United States needs to do a whole lot proactively to support Bitcoin. It's almost like a do no harm approach. It's like it's yeah, already yeah. doing the things that you want to achieve and it's gonna it's doing it on its own. And when we say it, it's really just individuals doing it because they're incentivized and driven by the Bitcoin kind of motivation structure that gets set up. And so it's that to me is like you know, there's a lot of other projects that want the Bitcoin, that want the government to you know, carve out a certain special status or protection or legal designation, all power to them, right? Bitcoin doesn't need that. Bitcoin just needs sort of more hands off. Um, it'd be great if they were smart about it and understood how to leverage it in, 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 clever, uh, uh, in clever ways. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be successful. So, you know, just, you know, make sure you're, you're in alignment with that powerful force. Don't get in the way. Yeah. Um, me and Danny were talking about the uh, potential downsides. Mm -hmm. And it was funny, once we started running through them, I was like, well, are these downsides like mm -hmm. uh, there is a chance with the growth of Bitcoin that it actually starts to devalue the dollar? Mm. More people hold it, less people want to hold the dollar potentially. Um, it also uh, tax and spend. There are kind of it's like a harder asset to tax mm -hmm. unless you add masses of layers of surveillance, which we don't really want because that is putting a barrier in the way. Mm -hmm. um, it could lead to smaller government, maybe nothing ever usually <laughs> leads to smaller government. But like then we started to realize there are perhaps downsides for the for the state itself as mm. a beast, as a growing beast. It, do you consider downsides? What are the things you consider with this or risks? Yeah, and I think it's we need to be one intellectually humble, right? Like trying to predict the future if Bitcoin didn't exist is a exceptionally difficult task, right? Hedge funds, presidents, governments around the world, their sort of job is to try to look to the future predict and then take actions to steer towards a favorable outcome. And that's usually not successful. Um, so I think when you're trying to predict the future without Bitcoin, exceptionally difficult. Trying to predict the future with Bitcoin adds additional layer of complexity. So I sort of go into that question with just a, like, be humble because I have no real idea, right? So you're trying to match out, map out what are the trends, what are the forces that you think would be uh, reinforced with Bitcoin, which ones would be mitigated? And what would be the sort of the net changing balance of forces that could lead to a certain state of affairs? And so I think you're right to point to some of those forces, right? Decentralization, empowerment of the individual over a collective. Those are all forces that's only pointing to one direction. The question is, do those, does that reach to a new equilibrium that is like, uh, like purely on one end of the spectrum? Or is it just mean that you sort of shift from maybe more centralized to less centralized. It's sort of, it's a force that pushes in that direction. The question is how far does it push you along that spectrum? And what other kind of material conditions, geographies, political cultures, sort of contingencies of where you are and what that system is that are gonna affect on how far that force can go, how far it can move. And so I agree with you directionally. The question is on what time scale and how far? 
uh, and, and in what places? And, and that's where you have to, to answer that question. I think you have to be really specific. You have to say, in the United States in 10 years, given this assumption about the, the strength of that force, countervailing forces, potential scenarios that could mitigate it, then this is the likely eventual outcome. And that's how I, like, again, I think in terms of scenarios, I don't think of just this one outcome. I think of this is the trend, and I agree with you, that is the trend. And so if you're thinking in terms of risk, it's also, well, risk from a what perspective, right? Exactly. Certain people think a certain outcome very desirable. Other people think it's the end of the world. And so, you know, again, I sort of wrote that from the perspective of the national security apparatus who's reading this, who thinks any challenge to the existing order is itself a threat. And so it's about accommodating to that viewpoint of um, what's a risk to a certain control that they have now that Bitcoin uh, would present. And maybe the net outcome is positive for humanity, for Americans in general, but it challenges a certain, say, instrument of national power that they rely on. Um, and, you know, to the extent said that maybe they think that that instrument of national power could be modified in some, some way and still be effective and meet its, say, well-suited ends, like, you know, preventing criminal action while not, you know, harming, you know, individual use of a, of a, of a freedom tool. Well, that's a, you know, that would be a desirable outcome, right? If you can, if you can mitigate bad things while not harming any of the good things, that's better than, than, than restricting good uh, in order to prevent possible bad. So I think, you know, there's like a lot packed into the question of the future of the state, the future of monetary policy, the future of taxation. Um, and I presume, you know, no special perch to, to answer those questions. I think folks like Balaji have a certain kind of idealized view of how these things will sort of evolve in equilibrium. And I, I like that approach as like an intellectual schema. You know, he has like the CCP, NYT, BTC axis, and he thinks, you know, these are kind of going to be the, like the new poles of the global order. It's great. It's a great kind of tagline. I think it's more messy than that. I think it's going to be um, a much more kind of complex sort of just disorder. Uh, and Bitcoin is going to be like a new force in that disorder. And it's going to allow reorderings of certain systems. But I think just, you know, disorder is itself a force. And, you know, this, the world that we've lived in for the past number of years, the one thing you could say like the global dollar system did is it created for the fix in the West, a sense of artificial order while sort of uh, exporting the disorder to the rest of the world, Yep. right? It was a, uh, we're gonna live fat and happy with stable, stable incomes, rising wealth, stock prices over here in the West, and then all the wars and all the famines, all the disasters happen everywhere else. Um, and so, you know, I think folks in the West need to recognize that that was an aberration. That's like a historical oddity that came at a cost, right? There was no free lunch there. And so if we're moving to a new system, you know, there's no guarantee that that sort of well-ordered bubble that most Westerners lived in is going to be, um, is not going to go through some, some periods of, of challenge or some reversion to the mean. Uh, and I think that's just something we need to reckon with, right? Like, uh, you know, if you lived a nice, comfortable existence in the West, and you're thinking we're going to go through this massive disruptive monetary transition where it's fair game to anyone around the world, it's going to get messy, right? And so uh, I think there could be a new reordering, a new structure that gets formed. But like any phase transition, I you know, did physics, it's like you don't just jump from one nicely ordered state to another nicely ordered state. You go through a period of disorder before, as things move around and shift into new structures and then start to, you know, form some more stable structures that can accrete into a, a larger structure. But that takes time. And if you're living through that process, it certainly doesn't feel pleasant. Uh, and so I just think people need to be prepared for that. Uh, you know, intellectually like to just jump to this far future. Hyper-Bitcoinization, utopia, everything's great. 
yes, like I want to reason about that too. I think it's valuable to reason about that too. But there's going to be a process. There's going to be a lot of potential paths to get there that are potentially going to be very messy. Uh, and I think it's incumbent on us right now to try to present uh, to, and try to get uh, you know, existing authorities and power structures to, to plan for that disruption in a way that minimizes the amount of disorder uh, and then you know, manage through it in a way that you know, makes it not as messy. The other thing, you know, in the, in the near term, right? So this is the other thing I would come back to. We talked a lot about sort of abstract stuff. Um, I think this year is going to be a very pivotal year in sort of, I mean, maybe in global history. Uh -huh. um, and I just think people need to be like, extra acute to what's going on. Um, and especially as Bitcoiners, like a lot can happen. It's like the butterfly effect, right? Like, or even a little... Difference can make a large difference if it comes at the right moment in time. And I think we're at that moment in time where when systems like this go through a, a shock, uh, again, strategic decisions get made over a weekend that can have effects for decades. And I think, you know, we're all in a position, even, even folks that maybe not think they are, to like, become politically active and, you know, engage with their, their local officials and say, Bitcoin's valuable. Uh, and I think that collectively can, on the margin, steer at least for us, at least where I live in America, a positive direction. Uh, and I think this year is going to be, I think, a critical year for that. So um, I think, you know, the, the, the time to kind of get engaged and think about what's happening is now and really understand kind of the state of play and just sort of be prepared for, you know, uncertainty. Well, thank you for coming in. Uh, absolute pleasure. Um, really enjoyed listening to this. Uh, congratulations on, on the work. Uh, I think you're going to be in high demand over the next uh, weeks, coming months. Uh, a lot of people hopefully will hear this and mm -hmm. reach out to you and uh, keep your DMs open. Um, <laughs> if people want to follow you, they want to read this report, where yep. should they go? Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm uh, just at Matthew underscore Pines. Uh, so please, yeah, hit me up, DM, tweet. Uh, but also at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, so, uh, so btcpolicy.org. A uh, new think tank we just got started a few months ago, really, uh, and we're starting to put out some more content. We really want to, you know, engage with this uh, executive order uh, and start to, you know, present some interesting analysis on some of those topics, you know, for broad use, in, you know, just to shape the public conversation. So, yeah, take a look at, at the website. We've got some of the, you know, fact sheets and reports we put out just in the past few weeks. Um, yeah, and uh, you can sign up for our, I don't think we have an email yet, but, but also if you want to engage with it, you know, please reach out. Uh, it's just like an open thing. Like we're not, um, we're, like we're starting this. So if you have good ideas or you think you can contribute, you know, you've got some good ideas or you have some uh, in interesting, uh, you know, white papers that maybe you've written or you th thought about you could write, this, like now's the time, right? Now's the time to have that idea that you've been bouncing around back in your head that you haven't decided to put down on paper. Well, do it, right? Write it down, get it out there. It doesn't take a whole, that's what I did, right? It was just like, I have I had no thought that I'd be you know doing this podcast three months ago right and until I decided to write this white paper so uh, and you can now have a material impact on the conversation and so I think that's also the beauty of Bitcoin right anyone can do that so well, uh, big I, shout I, out to Troy and David Zell they both said mm -hmm. uh, was it Zell first who said yeah, yeah said, you Zell. have to talk to Matthew Pines prior to your article coming out he mm -hmm. said I've got to talk to you <laughs> so uh, big shout out to them um, yeah. and we're all, we're always looking for new people to come on the show there's there's a lot of Bitcoin podcasts now. Mm -hmm tend to be recycling the same guests, having the same conversations. Uh, we want to elevate new voices, new mm -hmm. ideas, which is why it's great to get Troy on. It was great to get, great to get Margot, great to get yourself, great to get David on. And yeah, hopefully we'll have Andrew Bailey at some point. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we're going to keep doing this and keep pushing it. But look, uh, congratulations on, 
what is a comprehensive document. <laughs> As I said, my brother thinks it's the best thing since the Bitcoin white paper. So, uh, yeah, congratulations. Keep crushing it. If we can ever do anything for you, just reach mm -hmm. out to us. You know the whole team now. And, uh, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. It was great. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.